0: Bookworm Games, episode 46, Terribly Lonely and Familiar. We have a lot of ground to cover this time in Xenogears, so we'll forego the poetry. We pick up with Ramses' attack, which I'd meant to get to at the end of the last episode, but sort of ran out of steam. And It's tricky to know where to break up the story through this part of the game, as the action is pretty continuous for a while here. We'll just see how far we get this time. The first thing to do after Ellie has her freak out might be to go check on her in the infirmary. But you can also go back to the Yggdrasil's engine room first to speak to the mechanics for an interesting bit of world building. They don't actually know how their engines work. Somehow, high-energy plasma builds up in the slave generators. That is, generators controlled by some mysterious source. And engineer conjectures that perhaps Solaris knows the secret. Ships and gears, we're reminded, are on loan to their users and not fully understood. As much as in the real world our fossil fuels come to us from sources we cannot begin to comprehend the accretion of millennia of living things and our use of them has already had consequences. We're only just beginning to feel. Hammer and Choo Choo each has a more cynical take on Ellie's behavior, but we can trust Satan's read of the situation, that she herself was a kind of slave for a while there, under hypnosis. With the alarm raised about an attack by a huge gear that's headed for the Thames, He arbitrates between Bart and Ellie, agreeing with Bart that they must protect their host, and with Ellie that she must prove her loyalty and regain her honor after what she had been forced to do, to assuage her feeling of responsibility by fighting back, very fay like Gravely, Satan promises to shoot her himself if she betrays them this time presumably with a torpedo or a BART missile, since she'll be in her gear. Fortunately, it doesn't come to that. The first opponent, Dominia, in her sword-brandishing blade gash, telegraphs her elemental weaknesses by charging her sword with an element so that if you interrupt her with Ellie's ether attack of the opposite type, it'll capitalize on the vulnerability and dissipate the attack. So even though she hits hard and moves fast and might dodge some of your physical attacks, you should be able to send Ellie's nemesis packing pretty soon, chiefly thanks to her ethereal powers. Dominia's rage, cursing the traitor in block capitals, is surely going to be compounded by her loss here, top side of the so At once, it becomes clear that a sneak attack is on down below, under cover of her distraction. So you plunge into the depths for another fight with the fish boxing gear Hai This time it's piloted by Ramses on his own vendetta against Fei, and supported by Miang in her gear that we saw before. Ramses' arch rival's response must be infuriating to him. You again, Fay says. He doesn't know what Ramses means by his other gear. But the most interesting part of the exchange is Ramses' comment, until I eliminate you, there will never be any light for me. Plainly, there is some metaphysical sense in which he means light, but whether it's primarily a moral one, about goodness, or something like intellectual clarity, or both, we don't find out in the murk of the underwater He's first to retreat once more, but not before taking Fay out with a repeated electric arm attack that breaks the rules of turn based combat. Valtal is incapacitated. Water starts to flood the cabin. Perhaps it prevents the transformation here to the red gear that we might be expecting. That Ramses certainly is. But before he can deal the coup de grâce, Ellie unleashes her own transformation, hitting Haishao with aerods. Phase critical danger takes the place of the drug drive. And from here on the non elemental attack will be one of Vierge's special options. Costs a lot of fuel, whatever that is, but it deals sufficient damage to end most fights in a single hit. Back in the infirmary, Faye is comatose, and Ellie takes the lead of the party for now. The Yggdrasil and Thames lack the resources to care for his wounds, but the Ethos HQ hospital might be able to do something. The doctors don't know what is wrong with him exactly, but there are some Etone atoners of sin, aboard the Thames. One of them could place Fay in the care of the church and conduct them to the hospital. In this way, the ethos organization, which has been in the background of Xenogears all along, intersects with our adventure in the person of its young priest pursuing his investigation aboard the Thames. Margie is looking for him too, and catches sight of a couple of thugs trying to kidnap a girl who turns out to be the young priest's sister. This dramatic, comic book esque scene leads to Ellie nearly being shot by the girl's father, Josiah. He chases off the thugs with the threat of his reputation alone, along with a stray shot from his rifle. But he has a serious problem with Solaris. He holds the gun to Ellie's head as she had Faye at gunpoint when they met back in the forest. But Satan manages to talk Josiah down. He recognizes his carbine rifle, and Josiah recognizes his butt-kissing voice, and knows him as Hiuga, his Solaran name. The girl who Ellie keeps from getting sold into slavery doesn't speak, and yet somehow Jesse understands her. They head off together, a father and daughter going about their shopping. Primera's brother appears next. He's 16 now, and the reason for the shotgun wedding that Satan alludes to rather rudely. And he doesn't apologize when Jesse says his wife is dead. Oddly, the screen fades on the meeting here, the Baroque theme music playing. And it comes up again in the same exact place, where some of the story has apparently just been retold by the ship's doctor to bring Billy, the kid, up to speed. He's glossy-looking, brimming with innocence, conflicting with his rough-edged pops in the duster and red bandana, his cassock of blue and white, green. But it's Jesse, of all people, who convinces Billy... To help Ellie and Fay out, the conflict is extended to embrace Bart too, who steps in when Billy takes an interest in Margie for her religion and asks, "Don't I know that name from somewhere? The work of the Etones seems quite different from that of the Nissan sect; he's curious to know more about her religion. But Bart refocuses things on the matter at hand, helping his friend Fay. Impolite as it may be, he's in good company with Satan, who remains cool towards Jesse. And Ellie even thanks him for putting off affairs and Ave long enough to see to Fay's recovery. At last, it's time to depart from the Thames in control of the much-repaired Yggdrasil 2. Margie can swap your party members for you. At this point, it doesn't much matter who's in the group, as long as it's uh, got Billy in it. It's a short sail up to the Ethos HQ. The random battles all take place in Gears. A few of the sea monsters will be formidable at first, but the light mech opponents, stray sweepers, service bots of one sort or another... Should be no trouble. No vels, the reapers, said to plague these seas, assail you, yet. The other locations you can see en route, the orphanage, the tall, tall Babel Tower, need not detain us for now, though you can visit them if you want to. You can also take that mention of Ave and the Nisan sect as a hint. To sail clear back across to the Ignis continent to revisit some old haunts. This journey would take some time, and then a little more hunting around for a beach to land on. But it's well worth it if you've got the 38,000 G to purchase an Ether Doubler from the Nissan shop. It's better to get this done now if you want to do it, because... Ether use will increasingly become critical parts of the battles from this point on. After a few more chapters, you won't have another chance to go back and buy one. The time investment now will save you much more time in the long run. The money will pay for itself many times over. With that bit of shopping done, you should head for... The golden compound of the Ethos headquarters on its island. Upstairs, this is a somewhat bare church with nothing of the glorious art and architecture of the Nisan Cathedral. It's mostly empty pews, face that cross branching into horns, a symbol lit by candles behind the altar. Downstairs houses something else entirely, Billy leads you through the grating and down to the shiny metal corridors in the basement, full of advanced technology, but the only section you can access for now is the hospital ward. Faye is pronounced to be out of danger, but he still needs rest. With him absent from the party and Ellie choosing to stay by his bedside, who is the player left to identify with? Billy actually seems to take the lead dealing with his own past in this portion of the story. In contrast to Fay's past, Billy's father's doings are all too flagrant. A red-robed brother Etone, Verlaine, complains of Jesse's reported raids on dig sites. Exploring further around the church, you can overhear the woes of people driven from their homes by the vels, and you get a cryptic remark about the quantity of these bells as if someone were doing it on purpose. And you might hear that Jesse used to be a skilled etone himself. For Billy to join your party, though, you have to go visit him at the orphanage where he lives along with his sister and looks after the children who, like them, have no one else to care for. At the Ethos HQ, the emphasis was on an exception being made to allow you to explore. And you're still an outsider at the orphanage, but how different your welcome is here by the children. As different as the look of the HQ from the cathedral. This homestead, rather than extending maze-like and dormitories where refugees are gathered, and also underground with advanced uh, metallic corridors and medical technology and who knows what else. Those tantalizing treasure chests that you can't reach yet, visible across the black space, the background. Instead of all this, the orphanage is reminiscent of nothing so much as Satan's house, suffused with color, down to the light-hearted music playing there, it's the same tune that was used before for ChuChu's Choo introduction and it changes from a toy blocking your path to a sentient creature. You're greeted here by a kid standing near the entrance with his breathless stream of consciousness like a mashup of the quack at the Ava fair and the Kislev guard doting on his minigear figurine the kid says Can't see the flying saucer today, ah! Want to know about the flying saucer? Then just ask me. If you tell him, kid begins to talk. Ahem. Actually, it was a long time ago. About 50 years ago, an old man, Henry Mingus, said he was taken by the saucer and his body was altered. Well, no one believed him, but afterward, it said, he had amazing knowledge and skills he'd never had before. Then ten years ago, strange circles shaped marks that were found in many places. You must have heard about it. No? Well, anyway, they were called mystery circles. So this guy spread rumors that they were saucer landing sites. And when others began to disappear, there was even more talk. But there were other things than the saucer landing site explanation, such as the Nata stories, dragon scrolls, or plasma legend. So there was no real proof. But real disappearances did happen. Oh, I forgot to mention, the saucer was called Shavat. There are even people who worship it. So was that of any use? Hem. The other interactions out in the yard are just as lovely and a little more comprehensible. From Ellie questioning the little boy's refusal to play with girls, he makes an exception for her to join him on the seesaw, to the bird demi-human who you can help collect his chickens for a tag badge. The chickens follow you if you talk to them with a cluck, like temporary party members. If you're looking for more stories, there's treasure everywhere here, from the three books you can find to the bedtime story you can read aloud, another version of the story of Shavat. Long, long ago, there was a woman named Zephyr, She wanted to be a god, so she built a tower that reached up to heaven. Then she built a city at the top. But God got mad and destroyed her tower. So she then had to live in a hideout for sinful hermits. After that, she never returned to the earth again. The end. The kid asks, Is there really a hideout for skinful termites? It sounds scary. If you look in your inventory, you can see that one of the books you find is a comic, Adventures of Big Joe. One comes courtesy of a kid hiding from Brother B in the rafters, if you promise not to tell on him. Another is used instead of toilet paper by the kid who pops out of the bathroom. The item left in the toilet bowl stays where it is. For the third book, On Ethos, Doctrine, Fire, and Brimstone... You need to go to Primera's room, where you talk to the kid whose dad had a matching bell. He rings it for you. If Rico is in your party, he'll have the heart to tell him, though Satan won't, that his dad has gone on to a faraway place. And he'll give him his bell, which will cheer him up. And to think, his dad said he was just going to the Ethos headquarters and never came back. The secret passageway behind a bookcase will require all three books to open it, but you can spot Billy coming out from there and listen when he tells you not to go snooping. One of the kids outside has figured out there must be a secret room, too. Talking to Billy in the main room, he'll turn out to recognize Sigurd. Siggy, as he calls him, comes in with news of a large ship on the radar. Jesse, too, knows the silver-haired man from their days in Solaris and demands that they catch up over drinks in the Yggdrasil's bar. This is the first mention of Billy's mother's name, Raquel, whose smile Sigurd sees again in him. Out front again in the yard, another visitor appears as soon as Satan and the others have gone drinking. Bishop Stone, uncle to the kid's, except for Prim, who doesn't seem to like him for some reason. For better or worse, he persuades Billy to take up Bart and Ellie's offer to accompany him to the unresponsive ship in the dangerous currents, where there are likely bells. A short scene ensues on board the sub, in the gunroom with Masons bar, though not quite willing to do their old trick of painting faces on their bellies and dancing around, Sigurd is falling down drunk, which means setting out to navigate any seas more treacherous than the level floor will have to wait. That sets up a sequel later that same night, wherein Jesse returns to talk to his son, who stayed aloof from the drinking session. He's effusive, praising Sigurd's stories, but Billy snaps at him to keep it down, chastises his father for making his lightweight friend drunk, and the argument falls back into what seems to be the conflict at its core, Billy's calling as a priest and his father's career as a miscreant. Billy would prefer to disavow his relationship to Jesse. He balks at discussing what he seems to know about Raquel's death. They part with Jesse reiterating that Billy should find another line of work. The next sequence illustrates something of what that work is. The guesses of Margie and Hammer about a ghost ship turn out to be more or less on target. But first, there's a brief tutorial from Billy about how to use his weaponry. And there's some history out of the ludicrously named Mashiganator in the gunroom, alas is passed over for now. Billy's history and the Etones is what we get. They use guns, little and big ones, which require ammo. He also has ether guns of his own construction, which cost nothing, presumably slave-generated fuel. And like the attacks of your other party members, they only have an elemental ether connected to each one wind, and fire for now, though you can get water and earth before too long. Billy's reminiscences in answer to Ellie's question about his motives for being in tone lead us into a sepia-toned flashback, much like Rico's when he stumbled into the Kaiser's wife's room. Billy recalls his dad teaching him to shoot, then disappearing but leaving the smell and the firearm as mementos. Then the critical day came. When he was twelve years old, the reapers appeared like blue-skinned versions of the same sprites we saw aboard the Thames trying to snatch Primera. Billy hid with his sister until the shots from Bishop Stone's gun removed the threat, but too late for Raquel. Bart interjects here, curious in spite of himself, and asks if reapers can talk. Billy confirms that they can be highly intelligent. We might think of red rum again, and of Satan's remarks. So Billy trained at the monastery to be like his savior, but Prim never spoke a word since. When Jesse returned from wherever it was he'd gone, just as suddenly as he vanished, he was a changed man. Yet still, Prim trusted him while Billy struggled too. He confesses that he almost prostituted himself for money. Gets a rise out of Bart. Let him know if they ever need help, the young prince insists, and never let him hear the phrase, sold his body again. It's another variation on the slavery motif that's been echoing throughout these chapters. Jarring as this particular image is. The ethos transport is creepy enough when you get there. Dark and smelly, crammed with tough opponents, the vels who savagely pounce or fling pieces of themselves at you from a distance. Mercifully, the dungeon as a whole is much shorter than the slog through the Kislev sewers, with only a slight, if at all, powered-up version of Redrum, bloody at the end. Bart's healing ether... And gun combos make him a solid replacement for Fay in terms of combat, whether or not his backstory seems quite as compelling. The Gear Boss battle with the giant vels, which follows Bloody's strange last words I'm counting on you. It could be for your party or for the lumbering beast in the sea. Either way, it's certainly a chance to unveil Billy's awesome gear, Renmautzo which is launched by the kids at the orphanage, by the windmill and the playground equipment, which turn out to be a mechanism for sending the blue traveler to meet his master. Ether attacks are the only way to harm the giant, but somehow they cause it to grow, leading to questions about the nature of the ether power your party commands. And of the giant fells and of the normal-sized ones, this giant one is much faster than Billy had expected. And it finally earns him the thanks that Bart had mocked him for finding it so hard to say back in the gunroom when your party helps him defeat it. You can stop along the way at Billy's private gunroom behind the bookcase for what's hidden there, his own kind of memento locket on your way back to the Ethos headquarters. And once you arrive back at the Ethos, Where Billy expects to deliver his report and repay your party for helping him. Instead, you find sacred halls full of dead and dying people and the assassins still going about their devilish work. They look like an inversion of the Eton's cleansing of fells. At first, it seems Jesse might be among them. His shell casings are there in the church. But he's nowhere to be found for now. Instead, they come in two varieties short ninja goblins with scissor hands, tall, bizarro versions of E tones, arms outspread in prayer, who are the most annoying enemies in the game so far. They hit you with seal spells, which take forever to run their animation, weak as they are, and they throw nets, which either block your own ether use or stop your motion entirely. The seal armor for a gear that's found in one of the chests should also make you wonder about the meanings of this seal spell. You might have tried visiting Babel Tower to find its door sealed with the same symbol. That other meaning of the word. Some of the black-clad assassins use another word that should ring some bells. Purge, they cry as they attack. A bishop in one of the stairwells not Stein, apparently, hints that the ethos have brought this on themselves. Again, mixing the language of purgation as found in Solaris and in the church. The pontiff himself, that is the Pope, gets mauled before your party can help, suggesting with his dying breath that he knows more about whatever this sin is that's been exposed. Off to one side, you bring the prisoners. First, a grievously wounded person in a strange garb who speaks of contacting Shavat. Once they're set to be placed aboard the Yggdrasil, you find Big Joe next door who thanks you profusely this time and implies that it was all for him that you came here and that you'll brag about saving him some day before he hurries off wherever it is that Big Joe goes. In the databank room further along, a rather prolix scene ensues, the upshot of which is that the ethos has been a front for Solaris all along. Shakan himself turns out to be a bishop in their employ. The Kislev battle arena data has been copied in, too. They control the war. They deploy demihumans. They send slaves and resources up to the flying city. They guide history ever since the Great War of 500 years ago. However, Satan turns up a record from 19 years ago showing that the ethos began planning to break away from Solaris by excavating an even more ancient civilization and using what it found for itself. This is the Zeboim city, which sank to the bottom of the sea 4,000 years ago. This is what the Thames has recently been brought on to complete the salvage of. And it's what Solaris has finally stepped in to prevent that is, by assassination, <laughs> its subsidiaries' breakaway and its ploy for world domination. Satan says that such rebellions have actually been common. But this is shattering news to Billy's whole worldview. Verlaine appears again. He rehashes all this out in the hall, couching it in a blend of religious verbiage that helps drive it home. Though Jesse's first uh, shot stuns him. And then Stone silences him for good. He draws out the sexual depravity including pedophilia that's practiced by the ethos upon its refugees. And he's about to say more, implicating Billy in the twisted justice Stone claims their murders manifest before being killed himself. Oh, sorry, not Stone. Uh, This is Verlaine speaking his words and the whole situation are crucial to consider here. First Billy, even if that were true, we have no right to punish others. Judgment belongs to God. That is what we were taught, wasn't it? And Verlaine, God, where does such a being exist? You should know by now how the ethos came about. It was an organization created by Solaris eons ago solely for the purpose of managing ignorant humans. Its doctrines are just deceptions designed to control the masses. The ethos used the two sweet fruits of faith and technology very well to skillfully manipulate global affairs and people's zeal. Thus, they manipulated the ignorant masses repeatedly to continue their pointless wars. Eventually, battle data on man and weapons gleaned from these wars were sent to Solaris itself and analyzed to aid in ruling the entire Earth. These intentionally perpetuated wars caused much psychological discord. But faith in God, salvation, was used as a cushion to soften the blow. It was a well-thought-out system, but the choice of managers was extremely poor. Or did you think that acting the part of a faithful servant of God would some day yield an answer from a great God somewhere? Can't you see that such a divine being just never existed from the beginning? And you don't seem to realize this, but you yourself were passing judgment on sinners as much as we were. Billy, I, I have been passing judgment. God's non-existence is asserted here in the same breath as a fanatical Puritanism, complex mix of fact and interpretation, a dogma steeped in blood. The soldiers accompanying stone are the same we saw emerge with the masked woman in Kislev. And he launches into yet another rehash of Verlaine's argument. Claiming the authority of an inquisitor for himself, promising to reveal the esoteric truth at last that has been encased in the ethos, God, and faith system of etern- external teachings. And that's when Jesse intervenes. His name, Stein, brings a twinge of pain to the scars of this body, apparently put on. Like his false name. Oh, sorry. His real name is Stone. And, uh, oh, no. Yeah, his fake name is Stone. His real name is Stein. Gosh, it's so confusing. Uh, he escapes, whatever he's called, riding in the mobile gear Alkenshell. And this one is tailored to destroying ships that are the size of, say, the Thames. But before he or you can get there, the masked woman's ship that we saw in Kislev appears. Though she is not there, it launches beams from above at the captain's ship and the surrounding vessels. We've got a break in the action now, and it's the elders. Their comments this time are almost entirely comprehensible for a change. All that was needed was to fulfill the duty. Now I sense a thought of greed, a selfish creed. I question his faith. We have no need for an organization of fanatics. We will seek what they will. It's their nature. But too much is undue. Something must be done. A reprimand is necessary. They are an expendable group. There is nothing we can do at this point. Yes, there is nothing more to gain from their continued existence. They've already done what we required. Currently, we're in the process of dealing with each area responsible. Stein is in charge of dealing with Akavi. Bear in mind the need for a fitting solution. Didn't we just take care of that? Moreover, Krellion is rather exorbitant. It's only a molecular machine. Why is he placing so much importance on it? Humans and machines, it's all the same to us. Yes, they are all the same. This Krellion they mention is shown to us next, aboard the ship, he deploys the vels He tracks Dine's movements to the Zeboim dig site. His name, slightly modified in translation, comes straight from Childhood's End by Arthur C. Clarke. For the full ramifications of this, we'll have to get to know him better. But that character, standing on the threshold between vastly different planes of existence, is worth getting to know firsthand. So... Give the book a read. Stein doesn't take part in the attack on the Thames. What's more, the men and women of the sea seem to have taken care of it themselves. By the time you arrive to help out, or maybe it's that Krellian's Vels recovered whatever it was that he wanted, and then drifted away again, leaving the Thames afloat, if damaged, and some of its people killed or wounded in the attack. The captain. the Thames thanks you for your concern all the same. He points you in the direction of a dig site where supposedly there's nothing, but that's where Stein's gone if you want to settle your score with him. Before pursuing him this time, it might be worth backtracking to level up and pick up that ether doubler. Now when you're ready, descend the elevator, climb through the dig and into this other world this place which is the ultimate backtrack, 4,000 years strong. In a brief scene between Miang and Graf that takes place underwater as you descend, she cites this figure again and implores him to do something about Faye's reawakening. Since, she says, you know what's there better than I do. Now, the pronouns are a little vague here, but he probably won't give anyone anything, but it's something we both need. You know what I mean. Whether he refers to Krellian or perhaps to Fay, I'll have to wait and see. And what it is that Graf is supposed to do about it. Ziboym. Named for one of the biblical cities of the plain, is spread out in the background as a phantasmagoric cityscape, just as long as you cross the bridge into the dig site's main find, a labyrinthine compound. The ambient silence, the many doors that don't open, these are almost more menacing than the enemies themselves, those visible and invisible. You've got the sleep casters, the ether stealers, Gebler guards shooting little lasers. By now, you should be able to fill in most of the combos for just about everyone in your party, unless you opt to rely on Ellie's ether attacks in her case. As you burrow down and down through the floors, winding ever clockwise, it becomes clear that the place is a kind of hospital. It's got a series of Airlocks designed like any labyrinth, it seems. Not to keep you out, but to keep something in. Satán points that out and notices that Ellie seems to recognize the place. Finally, you come to a floor at the end of which there's something different. It's reminiscent of the Athos HQ computer room. The scanners read out that the emergency button, presumably triggering some sort of lockdown, was switched on... Ah, this number, I don't know if I can read. It's a three and a four, followed by one, two, three, four, five, six nines. That many hours ago, which is about 4,000 years ago. Give or take a few for leap years. Once the scanner confirms that you're free of nano contamination. You can go to another terminal to reset the emergency protocol. Though the database remains inaccessible, the passageways will now be open. Who could the system admin be who is supposed to help you get more information? Next floor is fully operational depressurizing and passing you through one airlock and with its own banks of computers Satan can't hack into. Who could know the password? In the next airlock, Ellie has a flashback blending elements of her murderous rampage in Solaris with something far older and more haunting the way the music prepares us for. That track called June Mermaid for her whose tear Faye was inexplicably given back in the Lahan saloon. Instrumentally, it opens with a music box motif, though the melody is different from the distant promise theme. It's incredibly expressive, incorporates other instruments to carry and develop the theme over a long melodic line through a tense bridge which changes the time signature, the pace, and borrows something in its note progressions from that Chrono Trigger theme song which supposedly came to Mitsuda in a dream. Here's what Ellie feels. Blood, covered in blood, my blood. There was no pain, just coldness and sadness. She seems not to hear or be aware of the others. It says, She has been here all by herself for all this time. As Sittan investigates the scene, noting the ancient blood stain somehow visible in all the red tint and passage, and despite the thousand of years. The marks which might be from the scorching heat or might be from radiation. Are we to imagine the sort of silhouettes left on the walls of cities leveled by nuclear bombs? He conjectures, It might be the emergency system which was used all that time ago, and he only comes out of his reverie at the sound of Ellie's exit from the airlock. She goes back the way they'd come, back to the room where the computers are, and says aloud, O vessel for a new soul, may the soul who resideth in you find peace. The inverted commas around that suggest she's quoting something or reciting it rather groff-like in the archaic grammar, nevertheless, there's a very different sort of vessel that she speaks of. And whether it's her words, spoken aloud, or some secret keystrokes that Ellie performs, the controls come alive, static, resolving into code, spewing out rapidly like something from just before that other emergency self-destruct sequence we saw back in the prologue. Here, Satan bursts in, warning her too late they don't know what could happen, is he not entirely surprised to see that she somehow knew the password? But she can only ask, like Fay, Satan, who am I? What am I doing? What am I saying? We don't get his answer. We're left to propose our own. The scene flies back to your other party member downstairs, who sees through the glass into the lab chamber, Beyond the final airlock, we're a green-haired little girl, is materializing from the liquid in the tube which has emerged from the center of the floor. She's naked as a baby and looks hardly any older. Resetting the computer with its rain of data, Ellie has also reset the configuration of nanomachines, which make up this being, this vessel for a new soul, here by herself for all this time. Your crew goes through into the room with her at long last to marvel at the newcomer, this minotaur in the labyrinth who looks like nothing so much as a troll doll, only to be interrupted by stone or stein, depending on what language you want to use. He calls her not only a colony of nanomachines, but the key factor, the instrument of God's guidance, the salvation for humanity from its yoke. The argument Billy offers is that Stein is dishonored by his bloody purge of the ethos. He's not fit to speak on such matters of faith or salvation anymore. Whereas Stone reminds him that the church's precepts all along have been that only the chosen will be saved. He questions Billy's ability to save anyone, much less everyone. The power of this living technology thus comes to be interwoven with a theological argument, which masks rhetorically another layer of technological dominance and liberation. The heart of the argument It's about the sort of God who is at the bottom of all these layers of deceit and striving. Whether that God is merciful, as Billy insists, or is moved by Krellion's masterful arbitration, as Stone seems to believe. Or as Verlaine puts it, that the God doesn't even exist. Whether it's Graf's mother of destruction or Ellie's mysterious memories. And her love. Stone seems to win this round of the argument. Once again, escaping. Taking the little girl with him. And leaving the remaining two elements of Jugend. Tolon and Seraphita. Wind and fire. To delay your pursuit. He hints at other ancient weaponry in the Zeboim ruins. It'll be a long time before you get to explore them. But even this most precious find is considered by his bodyguards to be garbage. They're only there on Ramses' orders, and they provide an offbeat comic relief in the midst of these weighty events. Seraphita, in particular, thanks you for opening the sealed lab, as her grandma always said she should, while Tolone corrects her clumsy pun and worries about a lawsuit from the makers of Star Trek because of her cyborg brain. If this seeming harmlessness and actual scatterbrainedness is what makes these two dangerous, it is also their powerful wind and fire attacks. But at least Ellie, again, is able to use all of the elements, meaning the opposing ones, which each of these two is weak against. Though her area damage spells only work with a certain percentage of effectiveness, you don't need them for now just targeting one element at a time. Between her power, Billy's healing, and whatever combos Satan has learned by now, the fight shouldn't be too tough. If Tolona is the last one standing, her wind attacks will get much more powerful, though it turns out this is only the warm-up to a still more dramatic boss fight about to occur. We'd better pick up there for next time. Thanks for listening.